Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison here. We hope you're enjoying the bit between Christmas and New Year and you're not yet sick of a diet consisting entirely of cheese and Cadbury celebrations. The Bunker is back on Tuesday the 3rd of January, but in the meantime, to tide you over, we are presenting our own selection box of Bunker Gold, some choice episodes from our back catalogue that you might have missed. Here, from back in September, it's the news we all wanted to hear, the end of Boris Johnson. Our own Ros Taylor is joined by LBC's James O'Brien to tramp the dirt down on Johnson's prime ministerial career in an episode we entitled Requiem for a Slob Clown. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. For years, we asked ourselves when the Boris spell would break. The holdies seemed to have over the Tory party and the country just wouldn't go. Now the Johnson era is finally coming to an end and we can answer the question, who really was Boris Johnson? And more importantly, what did he do to our country? With me to talk those questions over is a close observer of the soon-to-be XPM, James O'Brien, LBC presenter and host of the Full Disclosure podcast. Welcome to the bunker, James. Thank you for having me, Rose. It's a relief to be here, and yet I feel a terrible sense of foreboding. Are you in the same place as that? <laughs> you mean the, the the sort of Nosferatu-like rising from the political grave that, that we fear he might undertake, or you mean the prospect that Liz Truss has been watching the worst of Boris Johnson's egregious conduct, and while the rest of us were reeling in disgust, she's been taking notes? I mean both. <laughs> <laughs> then yes. Yes, on both counts, actually, but probably more so on the second one than the first one, not just because of the obvious inadequacies of trust, but also because of the scale of the problems that she'll be inheriting, which are not entirely of Boris Johnson's making, of course, but which have not been helped or alleviated in any way, shape or form by his premiership. Johnsonism, is it a thing? Does it exist? Can we identify what on earth it is or was? Not in ideological terms, no, I, I, I don't think so. But I think in, in terms of personal political performance and possibly even character, it's it's very similar to Trumpism. And I, I resisted that parallel for a very long time for reasons that I think I could only describe as patriotic. I didn't want to believe that we were as susceptible to such a complete collapse of convention and, and traditional standards as, as America had clearly been when it elected Donald Trump. But we clearly were because Johnsonism, if there is such a thing, is is just 
opportunism devoid of conscience. The only break upon selfishness becomes self-interest. So everything you want to do politically is designed to aggrandize yourself and, and to make yourself more likable. And the only occasion upon which you'll do something you don't want to do, for example, introduce a lockdown, will be when your self-interest demands it. So actually not doing what you want to do will make you more popular or be more palatable than doing what you want to do. And, and we saw a few examples of that, particularly with regard to lockdown. He always wants to act in the most self-gratifying way, except when he has to act out of self-interest and deny the self-gratification of, for example, letting the bodies pile high in the street. So, so Johnsonism, now that we're finally waving goodbye to him, I, I feel a bit liberated, actually. That patriotic desire to believe that things aren't quite as bad as they seem to be dissipates. And, and he, he, was, he was utterly shameless. And it's that absence of shame that I think defines him and defines Trump, that notion that there is nothing that would ever make them feel embarrassed. And there is no depth Unplumbed. I spent three hours on the radio today. It was supposed to be one hour assembling a list of his, 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 I mean, I was open to suggestions of good things that he'd done, but we didn't get any. The list was endless. The, the thing that oddly that people picked up on was that comment about the deep state towards the end, that evidence there, even after the chips were down, even after the writing was on the wall for him, he was prepared to co-op the worst excesses of QAnon and conspiracy theories and blame the deep state in British Parliament to say in the House of Commons that the deep state was going to try to scupper Brexit or something like that. So even on his way out of the door, he's detonating explosives that, that are going to be resonating for a generation at least to come, I think. Well, this is one of the paradoxes of Johnson, because he would undoubtedly think of himself as a liberal. And you could argue that he governed London as mm a liberal. But mm. then, of course, in power, he took every opportunity, proroguing parliament was the, was the obvious example, to hobble British institutions. And yet he still has this liberal tag attached, which bemuses me quite often. Is it still attached? Well, I think it's as far as he's concerned, it's attached. And as far as many of his supporters and erstwhile supporters are, it is. I'm not so sure about that, actually. I, I think it was true for a while, but you look at who's cheering now at the hustings with the interminable hustings with uh, Truss and Sunak and the way Johnson's name gets cheered. It's being cheered by people who think liberal is a dirty word. So he might still think of himself as a liberal. Someone like Michael Gove might still describe him as a liberal. But the core support that he spent his entire premiership pandering to, I think, see him as illiberal and are, and are delighted. In fact, if, I mean, probably not, not illiberal enough for some of them. He's not a pretty Patel, is he, quite? Or, um, or, or, or a sort of David Frost. But that's the opportunism that I was referring to. That's, that's the chameleon-like ability to completely change. It's Groucho Marx, wasn't it, who said, I've got, a, I've, got, I've got views, I've got opinions, and if you don't like them, I've got others. He'll, just, he'll turn on a sixpence if he has to in pursuit of that short-term gratification. And the short-term gratification is adulation and admiration. And if he gets more admired by being illiberal than he does by being liberal, then he'll do it. For a while, I almost felt comforted by that. I thought two things when he got in. I thought he might, I mean, he's prepared to throw anybody under a bus. So he might completely abandon the ERG lunatic fringe of the party and try to undo some of the obvious damage that Brexit is going to do. He might hang them out to dry on issues like the Northern Ireland Protocol. Obviously, he didn't. And and the second bit was, if 
his short-term gratification is going to be better served by being liberal, by adopting an approach to immigration like the one he had when he was mayor of London and called for an amnesty on all illegal migrants in the in in, in the capital. You know, of course, never delivered it as mayor, but he campaigned on that for a while. Then that could be good as well. But it's the ecosystem. It's an ecosystem defined still by the Daily Mail uh, on one side and by the lunatic fringe of his own party on the other. So inevitably, he ended up dancing to a very, very illiberal tune, I think, for the entire premiership. Well, speaking of the Daily Mail, of course, he was a journalist. He will probably be a journalist again. Does Does he have the worst traits of our profession, James? Yeah, yeah, he really does because he. Well, I mean, he he he'd acknowledge that himself, wouldn't he? When he got to well, let's let me take it from the very start. He got onto the graduate traineeship at the Times, and he wrote an article in which he made up quotes from his own godfather, and it was possibly he, he might have persuaded himself it was harmless, but it was harmful enough for his own godfather to complain to the editor, and Johnson was shown the door picked up shortly afterwards by the Daily Telegraph, ended up in Brussels where he realised that writing grossly exaggerated depictions of the European Union was causing huge delight back at home. So he turned it into an art form. He essentially event- invented Eurosceptic lies. Every, you know, you, you, whether it was specifically bendy bananas or, or hair dryers or whatever it was, he wrote about the, the, the delight in throwing bricks over the wall and hearing the glass panes of the greenhouse on the other side shattering and that that essentially is what made him famous that, that that's when he started honing this ludicrous political persona that took him all the way into downing street so yeah and and then ultimately i suppose arguably his last act as a journalist was the double column but when he wrote a column in favor of remaining in the european union and one in favor of leaving and decided at the final moment which one he was actually going to file that's that's almost impossible to get your head around as a journalist who at least seeks to be consistent or honest, to to be so completely profligate that you could consider both positions equally and and only decide at the very last minute, again, to refer back to Johnsonism, to decide at the very last minute what was going to provide you with the most immediate gratification or, 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 you know, or, or, or selfish aims. He did that. So quarter of a million pounds a year for gaslighting the nation. It's nice work if you can get it. Well, I hold the view that Brexit wouldn't have happened without Johnson. I don't I think, think Farage that. alone and no. all the other factors. That he, made it respectable. he made it respectable, didn't he? So he brought it about. And of course, he won an election on the strength of the Get Brexit Done slogan, which self-evidently he hasn't. He started a job which he hasn't finished. Do you think it will ever be meaningfully finished? No. Well, not in any sense that people claim they voted for, certainly. Don't forget that he still claims he did get it done. His his sort of forelock tuggers and client journalists, with a straight face, when asked to list his achievements, they say he got Brexit done and, and there was the vaccine rollout, which are both completely bogus claims. David Frost was whining about the deal that got him into the House of Lords before the ink was dry on Boris Johnson's signature. Northern Ireland is uh, a tinderbox in, in dire danger of being ignited and our relations with the European Union are are spectacularly and unnecessarily low talk of legal action today because of the sewage that we pump into the channel that we share so we're probably already in breach of some of the treaty requirements that we committed to so no in the in the context of a Brexit that was achievable 
I, I guess we're as close as we'll ever be. In the context of a Brexit that was desirable, well, desirable Brexit was never achievable and achievable Brexit was never desirable. That was true in 2016 and it's true now. There's a story about Johnson that as a child, he wanted to be world king. It does strike me that he would have preferred in many ways a ceremonial to a decision-making role. The job of PM is just not one that he is fit for. I can see him making a quite decent king under certain circumstances, but the decision-making and the responsibility of a job was simply beyond him, wasn't it? You mean a sort of Henry VIII-type figure with a phalanx of brilliant advisors whose heads you could chop off when their when their usefulness had, had expired. I think him and Cameron, well, certainly Cameron, expected to have a very easy ride as Prime Minister, almost a very light hand on the tiller. It's a job that is commensurate with their self-regard. They're trained from a very early age to think that they are born to rule and and electoral system continues to endorse that ludicrous message they receive at their schools and 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 Johnson less so came into Downing Street thinking he'd be at, less so in terms of thinking it would be easy but certainly came in thinking he'd be able to finesse it in the way that he'd finessed everything else in his life from essay crises to the to the foreign office and I guess I don't know how you feel about this but you you, you always said eventually he's going to run out of road and the fact that he had to become prime minister before he could run out of road. He didn't run out of road as mayor of London. That bridge, you remember the bridge, 60, 70 million pounds? Public money on a bridge and a brick was never laid. Foreign secretary, the Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe scandal, and he made her dismal plight even worse. And we now know, hanging out with Alexander Lebedev in his Italian palazzo, a man who's now on the Canadian sanctions list for still being a, a, an integral member of Vladimir Putin's inner circle. I mean, you, you just began to wonder whether that Fifth Avenue line that Trump used w- was going to apply to Johnson and nothing he did would ever actually clip his wings or, or see him forced to face the consequences of his own actions. But but yeah, eventually, eventually it was. So I, I don't know whether he could have ever been a sort of figurehead, a, 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 a monarch who was more in sort of more more symbolic than substantive because he'd have to he'd have been responsible for appointing the people who were supposed to deliver policies and off the top of my head you've got Dominic Cummings on one hand and David Frost on the other so I don't think that I don't think delegation was a particular skill of his either that was the nonsense they talked about when he was mayor of London that he was you know he always surrounded himself with very good people but one thing i've learned i i I have sadiq khan in my radio studio every month to take calls from my listeners and the mayor of london doesn't have much power The, the the enemies of the mayor of london whoever it is pretend that they've got a lot of power when they're talking about knife crime or 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 otherwise but they don't have much power at all so he wasn't a good mayor he was that what you describe is what he did when he was mayor but he didn't need to have brilliant advisors because you don't do much as mayor of London. There aren't many difficult, complicated technical issues that need to be solved. So one of the great myths that was part of what propelled him into Downing Street was that he surrounded himself with really good people when he was in City Hall. But he didn't. I mean, I think Daniel Moylan was one of his advisors. Kit Malthouse was one of his advisors. These are people who compete for the Inadequate of the Year award on a, on a, a on an annual basis. So 
no, I, I don't think he actually could have been a good king type figure because he would have to have the ability to appoint people who might say things to him that he didn't want to hear. And, and, and I think we now know that that's absolutely anathema to him. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. One of the things that he's tried to do during his career as perhaps to fill the, the intellectual and policy vacuum mm. that he represents, is to leave a tangible legacy. And he's been slightly successful with that at various times, but ultimately his bigger projects have completely fallen flat. You mentioned the Garden Bridge and that uh, fiasco. And there are the buses, of course, which the Boris buses, which uh, were riddled with with problems. There are the bikes, which he can't rightly take take credit for. But he was also, I mean, there was an airport that he wanted to. There was even talk at one point of a bridge that would link up Scotland and Northern Ireland, or alternatively, a bridge that would link the Channel in some way. And he doesn't seem able to. He, he hasn't seemed able to let go of this kind of physical legacy idea where he got into his head. That's his ego, isn't it? I, I guess they would be monuments to his ego. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, you forgot the cable cars as well, which are a bit of a white elephant. Oh, God. yeah. Anything that he can point to. There's also, I'm fascinated by the fig leaf model of politics, when you, your, your supporters, your voters are essentially your victims. They are the victims of your scam. And all they ask of you, really, is that they have something to shout or point at when reality intrudes, so when criticism starts addressing the reality of what a politician like Boris Johnson has done, his fans don't need refutation, they just need distraction. And so a lovely, big, shiny bauble as evidence of him being good. So it's a bit North Korean, isn't it, the more you think about it, but you can never mind the waiting lists, never mind the cost of living, never mind the hospitals, feel the bridge or feel the cable cars or feel the the bikes, the buses, like kind of monuments to ego, but also distractions from from failure, from from proper political failure. The job is not to commission buses, really. The, the, the job is to, or in the case of being a mayor, I suppose it is, but as a prime minister, the job is to do boring, detailed, Gordon Brownie type stuff, not to make ludicrous announcements about building a bridge across a a body of water that contains, I think, the biggest dumping of, of Second World War munitions anywhere in in, in, in the United in the British Isles. Yeah, I think I think that also comes from his fascination with the classics, because of course that's what he studied at university, and he oh. has a certain limited knowledge of classical <laughs> civilization. And yeah, he's always he's, he's modelled himself on Pericles, hasn't he? 
the Ladybird School, the Ladybird Book School of, of classical <laughs> civilization. He has, or Ozymandias. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I, I think he liked, I think, you know, I, I, the problem is speculating about, I think, a proper narcissist is that unless you are one, it's a bit like being a sociopath. You can't quite get your head around what it's like. It's not like analyzing, you know, someone that you disagree with, but recognize it's so alien to the rest of us to be like that but i imagine that having things named after him gives him a pleasure that the rest of us can't really appreciate or understand because because it's so egotistical you know i, I just trying to imagine what what what, I, what would be the equivalent for me a james a bridge a, J, a james airport i just wouldn't it wouldn't mean anything and i wonder whether it's because the whole Borishness of him is a confection. It's a concoction. It's invented. It's it's not his it's not his proper name. It's not what his family call him. Yeah, exactly. I, I've always refused to use the word Boris if I possibly can, and yeah, just say know. Johnson. I think it's totally I think fake. But... We should all become that. Yeah, no. I did, yeah, well, that's with uh, most projects over the last few years designed to stop the march of politicians like him. But I, I think it might be linked, you know, to the to the bolstering of the confected personality this the, the blundering the the buffoonishness the deliberate messing up of his hair before he walks out onto a stage that other people have documented the you know the pretending not to remember where he is this boris it's an interesting word isn't it it's it, it's got a kind of a clownish connotation to it and then you get the glimpses of the really unpleasant individual lurking beneath my, my former colleague eddie mayor was probably the one that came closest to really pinning that down when he said on the BBC, you're a nasty piece of work, aren't you? The Darius Guppy recordings, the references latterly to the deep state or reaching for that really nasty far-right social media slur about Keir Starmer having somehow not chosen not to prosecute Jimmy Savile, a blatant lie. You get that sense, that glimpse of what he's really like. And so the personality he's constructed to hide what he's really like is quotes boris end quotes and therefore anything that's named after boris becomes part of the camouflage of his character that he's been undertaking since he was 10 years old i think crikey that's a bit psychological (laughs) but ultimately i think he's going to end up as a very lonely man because he's screwed over so many people so many people some of them fairly decent were prepared to put their trust in him and he has for one reason or another, one for one purpose or another, always screwed them over. And I wonder who's going to continue to stand by him now. Because for all this talk of comeback, I, I don't see it. Do you see it? The comeback? I, 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 I never never say never, I think, in, in, in the, you know, the lessons we've learned since 2016. The people, electorates can do incredible things. And I, I, I do think that the ecosystem of the British media is so completely bonkers so skewed to the right that um, they're even setting up their own television stations now because the newspapers aren't, aren't corrupting enough of the of the population. So I, I wouldn't rule it out. I think it's highly unlikely, you know. But I wouldn't I wouldn't completely rule it out. No. So what will he do? Do you think? Oh, to answer your original question about who who he'll be left with, I, I think he'll be left with Nadine Dorries. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think that will be it. And, you know, crikey, I can't think of anything more suitable. Than Maybe him. she can write his biography. <laughs> that would be an amazing piece of work, wouldn't it? Basking in the adoration of Nadine Dorries when everybody else has seen the light and abandoned him like some sort of 
a terrible Greek tragedy. That would be his nemesis. Would that be that? That would be the fate that he so richly deserved. Um, <laughs> yeah, very lonely. I, I mean, to be to be a bit kinder, hurt people, hurt people, and 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 getting through a schooling. I've written about this. You have to assume a survival personality to get through a place like Eaton. The reason he called himself Boris was because they found his passport and started teasing him about being called Boris, and he turned it into a win. You know that 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 you learn these lessons early, and they run very very deep. and And it does mean you hurt the people around you. It does mean that the inability to admit vulnerability, to admit that you're wrong about anything, to admit any form of uh, of weakness. Or wrongdoing, you can never admit that you're wrong, turns you into something quite horrible. And while it hurts everyone around you, whether it's family or colleagues or friends, it also does you a great deal of damage. This is the curse of being a liberal, is is that you have compassion even for the people who've denigrated everything you believe in and everything you stand for. On a human level, he's a tragic figure. Even though he's achieved what he thought were his dreams, they've turned to sand in his hands and as you say, eventually everyone will will walk away from him in the way that they're starting to walk away from Trump now. You have more generosity than me, James, yeah. because I feel simple fury that we let ourselves be deceived oh, by this that man. Too. And some of us are I've, still enthralled to him. Yes, that's that's the baffling bit. I don't 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 think I, I, I my fury isn't on it. My fury is immense. My my and it will last forever because the damage that he's done and the damage that his cronies and cohorts have done to this country is probably irreparable in 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 some ways. Certainly generational. But I think of the child that became the man, and and I think of what happened to me at a similar school, and I have a little glimpse of what happened. David Cameron said something when Johnson got COVID, when it was announced that Johnson got COVID. And David Cameron said, "He'll Boris will be fine. I've seen him play tennis. And that that is, I think you need to have been to a school like ours to understand how something so obviously stupid and crass could come out of the mouth of a man who's clearly not stupid. And it is it is what we're turned into. The idea that the tactics we pick up on the rugby pitch or the debating chamber or the tennis court are the skills we needed to run empires, essentially, to turn up on the other side of the world and feel no particular empathy for the people that we were going to lord it over. It does damage to you. It does damage to to you as well. And you don't see it and you spend your life denying it unless something happens that forces you to address it. And it's never happened to Cameron. It's never happened to Johnson. That's why I can muster up a modicum of sympathy for the boy that he used to be, not for the man that he's become. Well, you've given us some extremely useful insights there into the Johnson character. Thank you very much. And we stand on the threshold of a new era, the trust era. Is there one word that you'd like to share that springs to mind when you think about what's facing her and what kind of woman she is? Terrifying. I I mean... I think I said at the beginning, while the rest of us have been reeling in disgust at Johnson's utter abandonment of truth and, and his, his corruption of, 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 of reality, Liz Truss has been taking notes. You can see, I don't know if you saw that Ricky Gervais film, The Invention of Lying, when he, his character was the first person in the world to lie. Somehow humanity had evolved without anyone ever knowing you could lie. And he discovers that you can lie. He becomes the first liar in history. And Johnson 
has been a bit like that. The lies that he's told, all politicians are liars, that bloke used to intone outside the House of Commons. But they were kind of, they were conceivable lies. They were lies that you could hope to get away with. They, they, were, they were embellishments or they were economical uh, economies with the actuality. They weren't, you know, here, here is a, a white thing and I'm going to tell you that it's black. It, they weren't lies that were utterly, utterly blatant and barefaced. And Johnson's brought that into into British politics. And, and Liz Truss, I watched her quite closely over the last few months. And I think Liz Truss watched Boris Johnson lying. Think about Dominic Cummings in the Rose Garden after Barnard Castle. She watched these lies and she thought, oh my God, they're getting away with it. it what, she didn't think what many of us thought, which was, oh my God, this is absolutely awful and it can only get worse. How can we possibly stop it? She thought, wow, look at that. It's like a superpower. It's like a superpower. You say what they want to hear, even if it's obvious nonsense, and they will cheer you to the rafters. And that's how she ends up on a on a podium claiming that one of these ludicrous new television channels is somehow more trustworthy than the BBC. Or she endorses some mad person in the audience claiming that the media got rid of Boris Johnson. And she just thinks, yep, I, I know it's nonsense. I know it's absolute hogwash, but they love it. So I'm going to start serving it up. And she becomes the sort of the apprentice then of, of Boris Johnson in a, in, a, in a kind of Darth Vader and the Emperor kind of way from Star Wars. And on that terrifying note, that brings us to the end of this podcast. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, James. May the force be with you. <laughs> and you too. Thanks for listening to The Bunker. And don't forget, you can back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and help us track the worst of the trust era. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Music